My guest today is a commercial mortgage-backed securities trader. Please welcome Alonzo White. Alonzo, how's it going? Good. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Hey, man. Thanks good, for coming good. on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries, man. I really appreciate you asking me to be a part of this. I think it's a really good idea. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's jump right into it. Okay. What do you do? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this and it's rare that you are asked a direct question about what you do without <laughs> using lingo. <laughs> so I thought it would be pretty difficult to answer. So I put a lot of thought into it. But flat out, what I would say is what I do is I'm an agency CMBS trader. Now, what that means from a top line is, is that I trade commercial mortgage-backed securities. And those are securities or bonds that have as their underlying collateral or the thing that provides the cash flow for the bond revenue from rents paid by tenants that are leasing office space or revenues generated by a hotel or uh, revenues generated by rent that uh, is paid by someone living in an apartment building. And there are other few property types that CMBS encompasses. My specific area or property type that I trade is called multifamily properties. So those are any apartment building that has five or more units. So that's a long way of saying that I trade mortgages that are backed by multifamily properties that have five or more units across the nation. And anyone can do this at a large bank or like a Wall Street bank or at a large regional bank. I trade these multifamily properties for one of the GSEs, a government-sponsored entity. So that's another small niche because I'm not necessarily concerned with, although it's important to make money, that's my, not my singular focus. So that's it. That's what I do. Okay. All right. And now when you say agency CMBS traders, a few questions on this. So when you say agency a CMBS trader. The agency, that means the bonds that are backed by one of these government-sponsored entities? That's exactly right. So, well, the agency that I work for was created in 1938 with the purpose of increasing home ownership in the United States. Over time, when home ownership began to shift more broadly from single-family residences to multi-unit dwellings. They developed what is now called the multifamily market. And the agencies or these government-sponsored entities that were chartered by the U.S. government began to finance or guarantee the loans or mortgages of multifamily properties. Got it. So that's okay. exactly right. Okay. And with you working for one of these government-sponsored entities, are you trading mortgages backed by any of these agencies or specifically ones backed by the government-sponsored entity you work for? So prior to, and I don't know how familiar your audience is with the Great Recession, but I would assume that many people are. 
prior to 2008-2009, the agencies could trade in a number of different product areas. So agencies could trade, and I work for Fannie Mae, and the other agency is Freddie Mac. We could trade in each other's paper. We could buy CMBS paper that was created by an investment bank. So we had broad latitude to trade a bunch of different types of CMBS. Since the Great Recession, our regulator has limited what we can trade to only mortgages or bonds that are backed by the agency that I work for. So I can only trade Fannie Mae mortgages or bonds. And my counterpart at Freddie Mac can only trade bonds originated or guaranteed by Freddie Mac. Okay. All right. And now when you're trading or when you say you're a trader, what exactly does that mean? What are you doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So the best way for me to describe what it is that I do as a trader is, and this is a ubiquitous term, I provide liquidity to the market. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? For me, what it means is, is that I am the oil, right, that makes the mortgage engine run. So think about buying a house. If you buy a house, there's a, you go to a bank, you get a loan. The bank can give you all of the money for that loan. And, and that loan, that money is locked up for 30 years. One way for them to give other loans or make other loans is to recycle that money either and, and there's a couple of things that they have to do if they want to make other loans. Either they have to find some more money to lend, or they can sell your mortgage to an investor, use the money that they receive from the sale of your mortgage, and make another loan. That sale and the purchase of that mortgage that the bank has made is what I facilitate. I make sure that banks have money to lend to people that want to buy apartment buildings so that they can provide homes and affordable homes specifically for people to live in. So effectively, the oil that keeps that mortgage engine running and running efficiently. All right, cool. So so who you're working or who you're trading with, is that the, the banks then? Based on uh, what you said? Yeah, my, I, I serve two functions in the mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. I am trading, I am buying mortgages from originators of these mortgages, mm-hmm. trying to keep their costs low so that, it, and let me back up for a second. I think that working for a GSE is, is a unique situation because we sit at the intersection of markets and corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I say that because, you know, especially during this time, because our goal and our mission is not to, it it includes making money, but our goal and our mission is to make, to make home ownership or rents affordable. And the one way we can do that is making sure that we keep prices down or at least competitive Mm -hmm. for borrowers. And if we create a liquid market, the idea is is that that liquidity will keep uh, costs down so that people can purchase homes affordably and 
apartment operators can engage in their business affordably, effectively keeping rents down. So I think that everything that I do is through that, that lens, being a good corporate citizen and being focused on the idea that the goal and the mission of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is to make home ownership, whether that be rental or rental, multifamily rental or single family homes, more affordable for folks in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So back to the point of who am I trading with? I trade with both the street or big banks, Wall Street folks, mm-hmm. and I buy mortgages from uh, originators mm-hmm. uh, that are making loans to apartment operators. My role in buying mortgages from the originators is to make sure that the borrowers have the best price available and can in turn pass any cost savings on to their renters. All right. Yeah. Um, for me to do that effectively, I have to cultivate uh, an investment community, i.e. making sure that, that uh, you know, money managers, pension funds, portfolios, all of these kind of institutional, what we call institutional investors are participating in the agency CMBS market. And when I say participating, they're actively buying these bonds because if they're buying them that liquidity piece it helps me keep costs lower for borrowers ultimately right okay hopefully that makes sense yeah that definitely definitely, that was great that was great explanation all right now now with that can you walk through what a trade with either buying from the originator or or a trading with the street with one of the institutional investors how that goes and kind of the language when you're talking and just the cycle of it. Yeah. 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 So like the lingo is, is interesting. So I'll try and keep that. uh, (laughs) Could have a glossary for lingo, (laughs) but what initially happens is a borrower and I wish, you know, we had a whiteboard, but (laughs) you know, it'd be great to put this up as a diagram, but a borrower or an apartment operator is looking to purchase an apartment building. Now, for the agencies, for Fannie and Freddie, most of the overwhelming majority of the loans that they guarantee is considered workforce housing. And what that means is is that most of the uh, loans that we guarantee and that we provide liquidity for are for people making 100% of the area median income or lower. We're not necessarily, although we do from time to time, we're not necessarily guaranteeing and providing liquidity for Park Avenue, $7,000 a month apartment building. Right. That's not the market that we're in. We're in the marketplace trying to provide liquidity for apartment buildings that are providing housing to police officers, firefighters, teachers, working folks. Right. So so I think that that's important to stress because that part of that corporate social responsibility piece. So back to the question, what does this look like? A borrower wants to buy an apartment building. They go to uh, an originator or a lender that we have a relationship with and they find out what the terms of their particular loan would be and what the cost of that loan would be. The lender has some idea 
of what the cost of that loan would be because they are in constant communication with Fannie Mae and with me specifically, right? So I can tell them, well, for a loan that is originated or an apartment building that's in Houston, Texas, in this particular neighborhood with this percentage of the apartments rented, generating this amount of cash flow, that's worth $101 to me, right? Mm -hmm. And they'll tell the borrower, okay, well, this loan is going to cost you $101, right? And I'm just, you know, just using numbers for, you know, they, they don't mean anything. And the borrower says, okay, great. I'm willing to pay $101 to get this loan, right? So we make the loan. Now, remember previously what I said was, is that the Dutch lender makes that loan. They, they use their money, make that loan, but they don't want that money locked up for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Right. They, they sell that. They want to sell that loan so that they can make more loans. So they sell that loan to me or to, or to a number of other market participants, but we're aggressively trying to buy that loan. And if you have more people trying to buy that loan, the cost of that loan gets higher or the value of the loan gets higher, but the cost of the loan to the borrower goes lower. Mm -hmm. It's just simple supply and demand, right? So yeah. there, are more, there are a lot of people out there that are trying to buy this loan. That lowers the cost to the borrower, right? And it makes it more, and they can pass on any cost savings to the renter in theory. So the lender sells that loan to me or to a number of other investors. If they sell the loan to me, I buy the loan, the loan settles into my portfolio, security is created, and then it sits in my portfolio or on my balance sheet. And I have two things that I can do with that loan or bond. I can find an investor for that bond, or I can accumulate a bunch of these bonds and create a very large bond and sell that in one big chunk to a, a very large investor. And that's kind of the process mm -hmm. uh, without having a, a chart to kind of show you. Right. The borrower asks a lender for a loan. The lender queries the market of which I'm a part to find out how much that loan would, would cost the borrower and how much they could get for the loan. They sell the loan to the market. The market either transfers that loan to an end investor or, or accumulates bonds over a period of time and what's called resecuritizes those bonds into a larger bond and sells it to a very large investor or a number or, or a bunch of different very large investors. So that's kind of the, the, the process. Yeah, that's great. Okay. All right. Now with that, sounds like you're, you're pricing these loans throughout the day. So how do you monitor the market, your market? Yeah. So the term screen jockey comes to mind. So <laughs> on my desk, I have four monitors and one of the things that, uh, that attracted me to fixed income more broadly is, is that fixed income, I think, sits at the, at the nexus of markets and economics. And to price loans, I'm monitoring what's happening from a global macro perspective, meaning what does the Bank of England, which is the Federal Reserve of Great Britain, what are they doing? What is Japan's Federal Reserve equivalent doing? What the Fed is doing? 
what are some of the economic indicators that are going on globally? What what's happening there, and how is that impacting U.S. Treasury rates or interest rates in the United States? That's where I start. Then you look at an economic data. Every week we have, and given that we're going through this pandemic, every people may be familiar with jobless claims or the number of people of un, unemployed. Every week, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out data that tells you how many people are filing for initial jobless claims. Th- this economic data impacts where interest rates are and how market participants feel more broadly about investing in a particular market. Because each of these fixed income markets that they may participate in, whether it be commercial mortgage-backed securities where I'm situated, or corporate bonds, or asset-backed securities, which are like uh, bonds that are backed by credit card receipts or car loans. All of these different fixed income instruments have different risk profiles. So depending on how market participants or investors feel about the economic data that they are analyzing, that helps them or shapes their view on which risk they should take. So I'm looking at these four screens and while I'm trying to kind of take in all of this information, I am making assumptions about the risk of the market that I'm trading in. More specifically, what is the probability of an apartment owner not being able to meet their mortgage obligations, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because one region of the country was heavily impacted by COVID or unemployment in a particular region or part of the country has spiked because of COVID or for a whole host of reasons. So you're always assessing the risk of the bond or the security that you're about to trade and all of these economic indicators and news feed all of these things come into play. So that's one aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. The other aspect is, is that you're trying to place what I would call a discount factor on the cash flows that you're going to receive over time. Like what is the value of, of the dollar that you're going to receive five years from now today? Right. And that, dis- that, that interest rate, the discount factor the interest rate in which you discount those cash flows will change based on a bunch of different things like property type. For instance, student housing. I may apply a different discount factor to student housing than I would to a standard multifamily apartment building because colleges are having some challenges with bringing students back to campus and it may be more risky for a, a student housing operator to generate revenue. So th- there are all of these things, these idiosyncratic things, things specific to a, pro- a property that will influence how you value that property. So one of the things that I'm doing that I do on a day-to-day basis is that I have a discounted cash flow calculator, right? Which is a standard tool that many people in my profession use and I'm just running cash flows. And, and I have tools that allow me to run different scenarios or different models. Like what if the borrower can't pay in two years? What if he can't pay in three years? What if he can't pay in, in seven years? What, what do my cash flows look like? 
and, and what is the value of that cash of that dollar in year seven today, given right. the assumptions that I make. So I have all of these tools on my monitor or my desk or my computer screen that help me analyze the risks, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100% makes sense. Okay, great. So, so wow. So you have this tool. It looks at all the different risk factors out there, whether it's region or certain macroeconomic indicators or whatever, all the different risk factors. And you know what cash flows are supposed to come in depending on the loan, how far out. And you're putting this in this calculator on your screen and it's discounting it. And it's a way for you to come up with how you should price appropriately these loans or bonds. Exactly. How, nice. how, how do I appropriately appraise the risks that I think are inherent in inherent. A, a loan or bond that I'm looking to purchase today? All right. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. And now talking about these macroeconomic indicators. So in the morning time, are there meetings where you're listening to research analysts and, and strategists that are talking about some of these indicators and what's going on across the region? And I guess going into that, just what is your typical day? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So as you were, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, all right, let me just go into what a typical day would be. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. So my day typically starts between 7.30 and, and 8 o'clock, probably closer to 7.30. Quite frankly, that's not true. My day typically starts about 6.30. When I wake up, one of the first things I do is turn on Bloomberg Radio, which gives me a brief synopsis of what has occurred overnight in interest rate markets. So from a global macro picture, what are some of the highlights? that have occurred overnight, just to get a flavor and a feel for what the potential tone of the marketplace could be for the day. When I get to work at 7.30, what I'm typically doing is reading through any emails from researchers that highlight important developments or risks that might have occurred or that I may have heard on the radio in the morning, but provide a bit of greater detail and maybe some analysis on what they think this means for markets more broadly. And all of this is on a backdrop of having a view or developing a view over time on where we are in the, in the current environment. So about eight o'clock, my team publishes a morning commentary that outlines or reviews what occurred the previous day from an economic perspective, from a, a flow perspective, meaning what trades occurred the previous day and where we think the value of, of markets will be to start the day. We do this every morning. It goes throughout the firm. It doesn't leave the firm, but it gives people in the firm an idea of what we're thinking more broadly about the economic environment and where we think the value of our market could be. Sometimes it's that we think that our market is going to be valued higher Sometimes it is, it's that we think it's going to go lower and we want to give people the heads up on that before the day starts. Mm. Now, once we publish that morning commentary, we typically have, or at least on Mondays in, in my firm, sometimes it's Tuesdays at other places, we typically have a morning meeting where all of the traders come together from different desks and talk about some of the risks that they're seeing. So at Fannie Mae, we have a, a treasury group 
that trades U.S. Treasuries and does uh, and provides a lot of su support functions for my desk. They interact with the street, with Wall Street, big banks, and other large regional banks, and buy and sell interest rate risk. So they may have a, a completely different view, even though I'm aware of the global macro picture, that is their market and they, have, they live in that market every day. So they may have more insight than I do. So on Mondays, we typically have a meeting with them where we walk through some of the monetary policy, which is kind of the Fed and other central banks, what they think is going on in uh, that space and the fiscal side, which is the legislative side, tax increases versus tax decreases. Many of the listeners may be familiar with the fact that right now Congress is negotiating more stimulus, right? That's a fiscal policy response. So th those things impact markets. So that so those my my colleagues that are in the Fannie Mae Treasury have may have better insight into that than I do. So we we talk through some of these ideas in the meeting. And it, it helps frame how I should view some of the risks in my market. Helps me better frame it. Mm -hmm. Once we have those meetings, we sit down, we strap in, and we're ready to go and start putting out levels to our originators, the people that make loans, and indicating what kinds of loans we find more valuable than others. And that's on one hand. And then the other side, I look at my portfolio the securities, the mortgages that I own in portfolio. And I start to figure out, well, which one of these mortgages do I think is more attractive to investors than others? And how can I sell those mortgages to make as much money as possible so that I can pass through the gain, if you will, to borrowers or to loan originators mm. to make the borrowing costs for apartment operators cheaper? Mm. It's a kind of a, a, a virtuous cycle there. Mm -hmm. All right. So listening to the Bloomberg Radio, reading your research, publishing that morning commentary. And sorry, with that morning commentary, is that something that anyone can see or only, only the street, really? Only institutional? Uh, really, it, it, the, the morning commentary that we publish is internal only. Oh, internal. Sorry, I missed yeah, it. Okay. Only, only, fan, only Fannie Mae employees can see that. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Okay. All right. Now, with all that, what about... When you get off, I'm guessing you get off a little bit after markets close. Are you able to just shut it off when you get off? Or are you seeing news going on about certain places, maybe large corporation laying off or just any type of news that you know or think will affect your markets and you're thinking about that at night or you just try to shut it off as soon as you get home? Uh, in a perfect world, I would listen to business radio or anything that might come down the pike that could help me frame the market for the next day, but you got to shut it down. Mm -hmm. So when I get home, I have a cocktail. Mm -hmm. And then what inevitably happens is, is that I find myself listening to programs on television that are related to what I'm doing, whether that be programs that give me some insight on the fiscal uh, policy response. So, mm -hmm you know, political programming, you know, I'm partial to PBS, like the news hour, because it frames some of the more important things that are happening from a political perspective without political spin. From my perspective, that's just my perspective. 
and I try to shut it down, but ultimately I'm, you know, I find myself just kind of everything that I hear helping me frame where and what I think the risks are to my market. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it does. It does. All right. And then let's talk about skills and characteristics. What skills and characteristics would you say are, are most important to be a successful agency CMBS trader? Yeah. Thank you for suggesting that I am a successful agency CMBS <laughs> trader. That's much, much appreciated, man. I do appreciate that. You're but welcome. I think that one of the things that is required is that you have to be comfortable with numbers. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. I'm far from that, but you have to be comfortable with numbers. And I would say that that is a good foundation to start from because you're analyzing cash flows. That's your job. And if you're not comfortable with numbers, that can become challenging. And here's the beauty of that. Anyone can get comfortable with numbers. No one is born with a specific aptitude for math or not. Everyone can get comfortable with numbers. It's just practice. So that's one of the things that I think is important. The second thing I think is important is is that like sports, you have to have the ability to put the last play behind you. It's not going to be the case that every trade that you make makes money. And sometimes you can lose quite a bit of money. But if you trust in your process, you've got to put it behind you and move on to the next trade. So that's another thing, being able to I don't want to say compartmentalize, but uh, I think that that's probably one of the better things, one of the best ways to describe it Mm -hmm. is this is one trade, this is how it went, this is the next trade, and this is how this is going to go. Right. With that said, I think it's also important to have the ability to recognize when something is not going right and to readjust. So being able to put the trade behind you, but if you start to see a pattern developing, being able to do some analysis to determine whether or not your assumptions were wrong and not be wedded to the wrong thing, not be wedded to being right, but be wedded to trying to find the right answer. And there's a difference there. Mm -hmm. The, The reality is that you may never find the right answer, but being able to challenge your own ideas and assumptions and make a course correction if required. Yeah. Uh, so that's three. And then finally, I think many people may not, um, may not include this in some of their required skills for this job, but I do. And I tell people that I mentor this as well is this market functions because people place some level of trust in what you're saying and what you say you're going to do. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think is invaluable in this market is, and this, this is crazy, but being a trustworthy person, mm-hmm. being a good person. Now, people may push back on that and say, you're in a market full of sharks. Not everyone is good. And my response to that is, you're absolutely right. I come across people and have had knockdown, drag out arguments with my counterparts, not at work at my job, but people that I'm trading with because I think that they've not acted in a manner that is above board. But that does not change how I approach the business and it does not change 
how I conduct myself. Right. I think that one of the things that I'm most proud of is, is that over the course of my career, my colleagues and my peers at other places would say, you know what, that guy's a good guy. Mm. And he's trying to make sure that he's trying to find a win-win. He's not trying to take you for bad or he's trying to find some common ground and a win-win. And I think that that really helps to get business done when getting business done can be challenging, right? People are more willing to, uh, in a challenging environment, to do business with someone that they feel like they can trust and think is, is a, you know, at least looking to find common ground than someone that they think is a shark and is looking to rake them over the coals. Got it. Yeah. All right. And I, I love that. Love how you put the importance on being trustworthy. That, yeah. Yeah. That it's important to have people be able to trust you and know that you're uh, accountable. Right. Uh, now, maybe in different areas, but you've been basically in this industry since about 2002, I think. Can you talk about what made you get into mortgages and especially agency CMBS? I know the uh, CMBS those are a little bit more complex and volatile than the residential MBS mortgages or MBS. So just what made you get into mortgages and CMBS? And then also just kind of talk about the steps you took to get to where you are. Yeah. So this is like one of my favorite questions because it was a long and fortuitous route, but I grew up in New York and and I'll start from why I chose this industry. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in New York and I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And I grew up in an area of the city where my apartment building could see um, downtown Manhattan, like from, from the Empire State Building to the World Trade Center. Hmm. And I've, you know, as a little kid, I've just been fascinated with the city, with Manhattan. And my mom and I would go in and uh, into the city on Saturdays because she loved to go to Bloomingdale's and we'd go and go around and be just be in the mix, right? My dad would be working and, and this would be something that we would do. Take the train, the subway in, into the city um, and just be in a mix. And I was just fascinated by it. It just captivated me. And as I got older, it's an inflection point in my, in my life. Mm. I saw the movie Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. and and that after that movie i knew i don't know what those people do <laughs> but i need i that's what i want to do the <laughs> fast pace being in the city working in the city being a city kid the money right <laughs> i was like i don't know what it is that they do but that's what i want to do <laughs> and then when i was in high school, a family friend worked for Morgan Stanley, which is one of the investment banks, and he was an investment banker, and he gave me like this Gord Gecko speech. I'll never forget, you know, uh, that talk. And he, he basically said, it doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter who your parents are, if it's something that you want to do, if it's in you, you find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most powerful things that anyone has said to me. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Just do it. And when he said that, and he kind of gave me some guide rails or gave me the landscape of what was available to me, you know, I said, all right, of everything in Wall Street, I want to do fixed income. One, I want to do the fixed income thing because 
not belittling any other role in the capital markets function, but fixed income, you have to know math, you have to do some serious analysis of not just a, a company's balance sheet. You do do that, but of the broader economic environment. And so that's what I pursued. Now, out of undergrad, I folks weren't giving me a look. So I joined a bank and was credit trained, which put a tool in my toolkit. Mm-hmm. And when I went through this formal credit training program, I was like, okay, well, let's see what else I can do now. Can I make the jump to this Wall Street thing? Well, no, no. Slow down, young man. Didn't happen. So I went to business school. And that helped me reframe my skill set and and then present myself with the help of an MBA from a, a pretty good school. And that opened doors for me. Now, what I will say is, is that that's not the root of everyone. You don't have to take that route, right? I had to take that route because um, my undergraduate institution, this wasn't a place where folks were looking for people to be traders on Wall Street. It just wasn't happening. And I think that when I was coming up, the roadblocks to entering this profession, they were a bit more challenging than I think that they are today. Right for a whole host of reasons. So as I kind of think about this, I don't want to discourage anyone from pursuing this career if it's something that they want to do. So I landed at one of the kind of big time investment banks, you know, went through their training program and landed on the mortgage desk and had an experience there, which was great, worked with some great people, moved to an, another bank. And then there was the great recession hit and I found myself on the investor side working for the largest pension fund in the United States by investing in running a portfolio for CMBS, for commercial mortgage-backed securities. And it was just, quite frankly, by happenstance that I got into the commercial mortgage-backed area. My boss at the time, he was running the residential mortgage book. And he was like, well, why don't you run the CMBS book? Because I, you know, I have my hands full of the residential mortgage book even though my experience was in residential mortgages. And that's how I found myself in the CMBS market. What I will say, just going back a a bit, is of all the fixed income instruments that are out there or securities or markets that you could play in, I chose mortgage-backed securities because I thought that was the most challenging. And if you understood mortgages, you were the smartest guy in the room. That may or may not be true, but that's what I still believe today. (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's why i chose mortgages got it man well i love that i love the quote doesn't matter where you came from just do it which is so important and then just what you you see in those closed doors you come out from undergrad and it wasn't there but you put your head down got into a credit trading program get out is not there put your head down you go into business school and you're there. You yeah. Know, those doors open for you. And how did that feel? You talk about you coming from that other borough, looking at Manhattan. So you're the first of your family to go to college. And then you get that job from the very prestigious investment bank. Can you just talk about when you found out and then your feelings and telling your, your family and things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually, it's an interesting story. So I tell people at uh, my job, we bring in high school students 
every year from different backgrounds, but mostly from challenging socioeconomic situations. And I talk to them about, you can't let where you are determine where you're going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad doesn't have a high school degree, right? Like, didn't finish high school. He's a Vietnam era veteran. He served and he got his GED, was able to get on, you know, working for the city and provided a, a great living for his family. You know, my mom was a nurse and went to nursing school at a time when it wasn't required, when nursing school didn't require you to have a, a college degree. You could just go to nursing school and learn to be a nurse. You know? So the idea of, of their son doing something on Wall Street was so foreign to them. They, they couldn't, um, th there was no way for them to guide me in the right direction because they didn't know what the right direction was. Right. right. So that's an aside to what I was saying earlier is that I tell these kids that come from similar backgrounds as mine or without kind of the contacts and the relationships that could guide them is, you know, I don't know what it was, you know, it was that movie, but I don't know what that movie sparked in me, but I think it was something that was always in me that this is something that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And even though I faced significant challenges and even some of my very good friends would say, dude, just, you know, get a job with the city, man. <laughs> you, know, mm -hmm. you know, stop chasing these dreams, man. Just get a job with the city. You know, you'd be retired in 20, 25. I kept pushing. And quite frankly, I think it was my stubbornness that wouldn't let me give up. And I tell these kids, like, if something is on your heart, in your mind, and you don't know how it's going to happen, just have tunnel vision and go after it. The one thing, the one caveat is if you're dithering around and not taking steps to get to that goal, then you have to ask yourself whether you really want the goal. But right. if you're taking steps, however long and arduous those steps are, but you're taking steps to add to your toolkit to, to, to get to that goal, keep pursuing it. Keep pursuing it. And if it doesn't, work out, you're, you're, you're better for the experience because you set a goal, made, developed a plan, and, and you took steps to, to put the plan in action. Mm -hmm. And those are skills that will, you know, once they're developed and once they are built, will stay with you for the rest of your life. And you can use them at anything that you do. You can apply them to anything that you do. And I think that that's the kind of the, the biggest takeaway. Now, to, to your specific question, like, what did it feel like? It was crazy. <laughs> I, I, it was crazy on a, a bunch of different fronts because when I entered business school, it was a very challenging point in my life because my mom had passed away right before I entered business school. And she would always tell me, I don't know why it is you want this, but if this is what you want, you got to go for it. You know, mm -hmm. you got to go for it. So when I got the call from Goldman Sachs that I was hired into the the mortgage group, that was the first thing I thought of, right? Like, yeah. well, I achieved this goal in no small part because my mom had pushed me. You know, right. I said, if this is what you want to do, do it. If it's not what you want to do, then get a job, <laughs> you know, get a job at the city. You retire in 20, 25 years. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, if this is what you want to do, make sure you're taking steps to do that. And, you know, I remember my mom would send me a card with like $10 in it and say, you know, go buy yourself some lunch. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're taking steps to do this goal. 
You know what I mean? I mean, it was like, yeah, she, that support, right, mm -hmm. was crucial for me. And that was the first thing I thought about. We did it. Yeah. You know? yep. We did it. That's great. Well, 18 years in the business now, doing your thing. Like I said, a very successful agency, CMBS trader. I know your mom is smiling down at you. Just so proud and so happy. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, she, if she's smiling down on me, she knows all the crap that I've done. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, hey, well, which borough did you grow up in? In Queens. Okay. And, uh, right. you know, I, I, in Queens and Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah. So... I think one of the things that, that I love about the fixed income markets is everything matters. Everything matters. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a view on it. And we talked about this earlier. Retail sales or consumer spending in Germany is lower than expectations. Is that signaling that the Eurozone is weakening? That will impact my market. You have to have a view on that. Right. If China is coming out of the pandemic stronger and their economic numbers are, are stronger than expected, what, how does that impact my market? You got to have a view on that because it'll impact interest rates, which in turn will impact my market. What's your view on that? If the folks in Congress let states go bankrupt or don't pass fiscal stimulus that uh, help states recover from the cost of COVID or whatever, you know, that will impact markets, right? Like what I love about it is that you have to synthesize all of these inputs and determine what is relevant and what's not to what you're doing because they all can have an impact small or large but you've got to figure out what's important and that's the one thing that i really love about my job mm, yeah yeah i can see that now what about on the flip side though what type of challenges are there for you in your job I think I'm fortunate that I work where I work. I know some of my peers at investment banks face a more challenging work environment. I have a bunch of latitude with respect to taking some time off or leaving early um, to do family stuff or to spend some quality time with my family. That's not necessarily the case at many of the investment banks, although that has been changing. So that's one of the things that I don't like necessarily yeah. about the job. The other thing is, and I've struggled with this in, in different forms from time to time, I don't necessarily like the clubbiness mm. uh, that still exists in my industry. The attitude that where the smartest guys in the room still exists right. in some places. And sometimes that leads to groupthink with respect to, you know, who you hire, right. who gets promoted, which can be challenging to people of color and people that are, are different, that bring a different perspective to this thing. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that, and I, you know, quite frankly, and I, I know that you didn't solicit this, but I'm offering this up. I think one of the biggest disappointments in my career for me is that I have not been successful in bringing more people of color into the places that where I've worked. I've been the only black trader at different points in times in my career 
everywhere that I've been. And I think that it's been difficult to bring on more people that look like me. Now, granted, when I began my career, I didn't have any pull to do that. But now that I do, I've been a, a little bit more successful, but it's still, it's still challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I've hired you know, a young Howard grad in my, on my team, but just getting more people of color onto the trading floor and different teams that interact, the single family guys, the treasury guys, you know, the structured guys has proven to be difficult. And that, quite frankly, that's one of the greatest disappointments that I have. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's a challenge, not only in mortgages, but just in general in finance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully everything that's going on, hopefully corporations, banks and others, folks that are starting to look at the corporate social responsibility will start to take a harder look yep. at what their workforce looks like. Yep. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Now, you mentioned the moment when you found out that you basically made that step into the industry, but can you think of a memorable moment that sticks out for you, if not that? Yeah, so my first trade when I was at Goldman Sachs, when it really mattered, I was relaying price to a trader, and I heard in the background that I could buy the bonds cheaper, right? Like they... I told him what price I would pay for the bonds was, and he didn't put me on mute. And he said, my best bid is three eights. And I said, I'd pay one half, you know, meaning, you know, just a, an, an eighth more. And I said, well, his best bid is three eights. Why am I going to pay a half? I'll pay three eights and say, you got to do the trade with us. You know, we'll do as much as you want. And I didn't retrade him. He said this. And I said, oh, I'll buy them at three eights. And he said, okay, you can buy them on a tie. You're done. That was one of my first trades. I saved myself an eighth. That's one of those. And it was, I I felt like I did something big. Mm -hmm. I was just ear hustling, Mm -hmm. paying attention. So. And how long into, how long into you started working there? Was that? That was, that was like a week after or two weeks after I finished my training uh, class. Yeah, like two weeks. Yeah. So people are like, oh, you know, that's a great, that's great. That was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it gets a lot harder after that. <laughs> <laughs> so like boiler room where they uh, cut your tie? <laughs> no, no, I didn't go that far. I would have been upset if somebody cut my tie. <laughs> well, well, hey, Alonzo, man, this has been great. We're at the end of this interview. Want to ask you some quick hitter questions for fun, just for yeah. people to get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, though, is there anything else that you want to discuss or anything you feel like I left off asking you? No, no, I think I probably shared way too much. But mm-hmm. like the, the one thing I would say is, is that for folks, regardless of what it is, if you're looking to make a career change or trying to find what interests you and, and you're embarking on ex- exploring what options might be available for you for a career, Find something that you that you want to do that you feel inside that you're led to, and if it's challenging, you know it it may not come right away. Just take steps, even if they're incremental steps, to add tools to your toolbox just so that you're getting prepared for your ultimate goal and career. 
I think that that's hugely important. Like if you, you want to be a singer, you want to be a pop star, cool. Taking piano lessons? Are you learning how to read music? Are you learning how to write? Are you doing voice training? What are you doing other than singing in the shower? Because if all you're doing is singing in the shower, it might be difficult. But if you're taking those small incremental steps towards your goal, I'm not saying that you'll get there, but at least you're working towards that goal. Right. And, that, and that, that gives you some structure and it gives you a framework that you can apply to other aspects of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Take steps to add to your toolkit, as you said, and, and that will get you to your goal. And just love how you said you, you can't let where you are determine where you're going. Exactly. Those two huge things, I think, are just great advice. All right. Let's get to these quick hitter questions. All right, man. First one, what's your favorite sports team? Oh, New York Mets. Uh, yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Although it's been hard, man. It's been hard since I think 2000. Oh, it's been hard, man. It's been hard. <laughs> well, we'll see. But things are, things are looking up. Steve Cohen now owns the Mets. The Wilpons are out. That's that's a good step. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Favorite movie or show? Oh, man. Um, you know, uh, that's tough, dude. That's <laughs> tough. Um, but honestly, I still watch Wall Street today. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I still, I still watch Wall Street today. It's definitely a classic, man. I'll watch it too. All right, favorite musical artist or group? Uh, Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, nice one. All right, favorite vacation spot? Oh, dude, favorite vacation spot, Martha's Vineyard. I love uh, that place, man. Nice. I still have yet to go. And favorite food or drink? Uh, it's something I call the Alonzo Palmer. <laughs> All right. Well, what's it that? Is, it's an Arnold Palmer with a shot of Basil Hayden. And it has to be Basil Hayden. It can't mm. be any other bourbon. It throws the taste off. <laughs> All right. The Alonzo Palmer. That's right. Alonzo that Palmer. That's <laughs> right. All right. Hey, well, Alonzo, like I said, it's been great. I love what you do, like you said, putting that oil on for the markets, you're creating liquidity for the markets. Love the advice that you gave. I learned a lot from this. And you talked about what you do for the kids and your talk to the kids. And, and that's great. I love that as well. So, hey, man, congrats on all your achievements so far. And just keep doing what you're doing. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. Hey, man, thanks for having me. It was a privilege. I really appreciate it. And, and I really appreciate what you're doing. I think this is a huge service folks that just want to learn more about what's out there because mm -hmm. part of the issue part of the problem sometimes is, is that folks just don't know what's available to them yep you know and you know this is a big service huge service thanks man thank i you. really appreciate that yeah thank you that, that means a lot thank you all, all right, right man we'll, we'll have a good one all right brother all right thank you everyone if you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast please reach out to me on instagram at rodolfo cooper Thank you. Bye.